Well, good morning. Glad that you are here with us this morning. Recognizing that the summer uh, gives us a ton of opportunities for visitors and guests and family members that are in town, uh, let me welcome you to TCC. Really, really thankful that you're here with us this morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. And that video is a reflection of why we're here, um, why we do the things that we do, because we believe the promise of Habakkuk 2.14 will one day be true, that the earth would be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's what God is on mission to do in this world, that he's going to fill the earth with worship of him, because he's rightly due of all worship. And so what we're doing is getting in on that worship now. We get to participate in what will one day be an eternal reality, and we get to tap into that in some meaningful way here. So we are delighted that you are worshiping with us this morning. We've been uh, in a teaching series in the book of Ephesians. If you have a copy uh, of God's words, you can open it there, Ephesians chapter 2, or you can queue up your phone and find your Bible app, whichever uh, is more comfortable for you. There are Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. Some of the words will be uh, on the screen behind me. If you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, uh, lean over to your buddy that brought you with them and let, let them help you navigate the spot. Uh, no shame in that. We want you to know that what we're talking about here isn't just my ideas, but hopefully is derived straight from the teachings of the scriptures. That is important to us. Let me tell you what is coming for us. Starting next week, we're going to press pause in our But God series. Imagine this a bit like a commercial break in your favorite TV drama, okay? Assuming this has been your favorite TV drama and you're coming back hankering for more, all right? We're at the midway point and we're going to press pause for a couple of weeks and uh, take a summer vacation. This is going to be our commercial break series. What we're going to do is consider and hold up for us a few fruits of the Spirit that the summer gives us a unique opportunity to treasure, to see produced in our lives. We're going to consider rest and contentment and joy as a people of God. Consider how the gospel springs those things up in hopes that as you have an opportunity, maybe some of you, uh, to decompress a little bit this summer, that you would have some healthy teaching on ways to treasure and find fullness in those opportunities that God presents. And after a short little mini-series commercial break in the middle, we'll pick back up right where we left off in Ephesians 2 and finish out the summer with our teaching series of But God. All right, so that's what's to come. Let's pray as we turn our attention to God's Word this morning. God, it is humbling for us to consider the reality that we are but a small piece of what you are doing currently around the world that today believers uh, all parts of the globe are giving you worship. We recognize that you are worthy of the worship of all peoples, uh, every tribe, tongue, and nation. That your glory fills and pervades the universe and that we are to make you preeminent in all things. We're grateful that here in Greenville, South Carolina, on this day, we could tap into that reality in a very small way. As we love and serve one another, as we sing to you, as we now consider the truths of your scriptures, that somehow we have an opportunity to give you glory, recognizing that this is but a microcosmic reflection of what we're going to do for all eternity. 
So would we be found faithful this day? Would those that are gathered with us this morning that do not yet worship you rightly, that are living apart from you in their sin, would you shine the spotlight on that today? They would see their sin, they would see your glory, and that they would surrender in repentance and faith. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Dunn, North Carolina may be a town that's familiar to some of you by virtue of its proximity to us, about 40 miles south of Raleigh. In many ways, it's an incredibly unawe-inspiring location, okay? Made up of about 14,000, population of about 14,000, the majority of which blue-collar workers. The town, just in the last few years, got its first Walmart, a sign of the times, right? In many ways, this town is like any other town in small-town America, except for one unique feature. Everyone in Dunn, North Carolina, reads the local newspaper. And by everyone in the town, I mean everyone. Dunn, North Carolina reflects in the United States the highest saturation of a local newspaper of any town in our country. In fact, the saturation actually exceeds 100%. They recognize 112% saturation of readers of the newspaper in the town of Dunn, North Carolina. Now, for that to happen, one of two things either has to be true. Either people that are traveling through Dunn, North Carolina, on their way to work or whatever, are picking up a copy of the local newspaper and reading it, or some families actually have more than one copy of the newspaper uh, in their home. Maybe a husband and wife that don't play very nicely together, all right? They don't, they don't share very well. So for this location to reflect the highest readership of any town of the local newspaper, we must consider why would that be the case? I mean, it's not as if Dunn, North Carolina is off the grid for the internet. They have hundreds and hundreds of sources by which they could receive their news. USA Today, the Raleigh News and Observer, the internet that's at the touch of most of our fingers. So why would a town actually care to read their small-town local newspaper. The story is told in the Heath Brothers' book, Made to Stick, that helps us see behind this idea of why so many people would care about Hoover Adams' local newspaper. The paper was founded in the 1950s uh, by a young upstart named Hoover Adams. He got his first writing gig uh, publishing news stories from the Boy Scouts and decided that he would leverage that into starting his own local newspaper, known at that point as the Daily Record. The Daily Record would run head-to-head against the Dunn Dispatch as the local newspaper of the town until 1978 when the Dunn Dispatch said, we give, this dude's killing us. And they sold out to Hoover Adams, giving the rights and the only local newspaper in the town to the Daily Dispatch. Hoover Adams' philosophy was singular in his focus, a focus that is true for most local newspapers around the globe. He was relentlessly local in his news coverage. He wrote in a 1978 memo to his newspaper staff this, All of us know that the reason anybody reads a local newspaper is for local names and local pictures. That's the one thing we can do better than anyone else And that's the one thing our readers can't get anywhere else. Always remember that the mayor of Anger 
is just as important to his town as the mayor of New York is to his people. So he said, if you have a choice to consider whether we take a beautiful photogenic picture of the skyline over Dunn, North Carolina, or the boring picture of a council session's deliberations, which do you choose? You choose the council session's deliberations because everyone cares about seeing themselves in the paper. He wrote, we can't get enough local names and local stories. When most local newspapers are filled with boring wire stories that you could get anywhere else or professional sports teams that no one knows and cares about, he said, we're going to cover our town. He writes, I'd be willing to bet that if the Daily Record were to publish the entire phone book in tomorrow's paper, all the people of this town would pick up the paper tomorrow just to check it out and make sure that their names were included. When someone tells you, oh, I don't want all those names, tell them that's exactly what I want. I want names, names, names. If an atomic bomb fell on Raleigh tomorrow, it would not be news in Benson unless some of the debris fell on the people in Benson. His work and the success of his newspaper exposes the human propensity to ignore even factual claims that we don't think relate to us. And this is the danger when we consider the truth claims of the scriptures. Because as long as these notions that we consider remain abstract realities of a cosmic God lost out there somewhere, interacting with nameless humanity, they lose their significance and we go on mental autopilot. But once the stories of the scripture become names, 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 and once you put yourself in the story of the scripture, the truth claims of God's word begin to leap off the page for us. We see throughout the scriptures the big picture story of what God's doing in all the universe. And what we're attempting to do in this series is zoom in to names, names, names. To take snapshots of real life people that the mission of God has intersected with. Well, it's certainly true that the mission of God in the world is far bigger than you and I. It's important that we understand that the mission of God intimately relates to you. It is God's mission to save you and you and you and you. This isn't some theoretical abstract reality that we are considering. And there is perhaps no greater phrase in all the scriptures to consider this reality than the one that we're going to look at this morning. Let's read Ephesians 2. We read it at the outset, but considering you guys are the most timely congregation in the world, most of you were here and in your seats when the service started. I'm just kidding. That was a bit of a jab for those of you that came in late. Uh, so we read it to start the service. So since most of you weren't in here, we're going to read it again. All right, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins of which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Twice repeated in that passage is the central phrase that we're going to consider this morning, and it is the phrase, by grace you have been saved. Notice the first refrain of this, situated right at the end of verse 5. After considering the reality that Hugh brought to us last week, that we've been made alive together with Christ, we notice that it seems as if Paul actually holds this idea out as almost a stand-alone clause. Perhaps we might consider it an umbrella phrase to which we can pack all this reality that we've considered thus far under. He says, by grace you have been saved. And then later in verse 8, he builds on that idea. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved, and by grace you have been saved through faith. So we would say up front, this is a really big and important idea. Paul's going to repeat it, and he's going to hold it out as a big umbrella term for us to consider. So because of repetition in the scriptures, we would say, this is critical. This is critical. Now what I'm going to do in this sermon is zero in. By grace you have been saved. Then we're going to come back and consider in a few weeks the idea of through faith. All right, By grace you have been saved, we'll come back and consider through faith in a few weeks. This statement, by grace you have been saved, is used by Paul as a bit of summary statement for the things we've considered thus far. I've attempted to package them together in a way that makes it at least sticky in my mind. Consider what uh, I hope will be on the slides uh, in just a minute. We consider at the outset of verse 4 this, this answer to the question, who is doing the action? We see that the who that's acting in the text is God, Right? But God, we hold this up as he is the central actor in the work of salvation. And then as if loading the idea of who with who question number two, the God who is rich in mercy. Okay, so not just any God, but the God who is rich in mercy. Then thirdly, we see perhaps the answer to the why question. Why did he do this? Because of the great love with which he loved us. This is the motive by which God acts. When did he do this? Well, he did it even when we were dead in our trespasses. He did it even when we were dead in our trespasses. What did he do? He made us alive together with Christ this morning. So how did he do it? The answer, by grace. Who? God. Who? Rich in mercy. Why? Because of the great love. When? When we were dead. What did he do? He made us alive. And how did he do it? He did it by grace. So, I'm going to give you uh, a bit of a softball pitch. In a few minutes, you're going to leave, and somebody at a restaurant's going to see you, and just by your snappy attire, they're going to say, I guess you were in church this morning. All right? You probably attended, as some of you, that's a stretch for you, but for some of you, your snappy attire, somebody's going to say you were in church this morning, so clearly you heard a sermon, because that's what they're supposed to do in, a ser- uh, in church is preach a sermon. So what did the preacher talk about this morning? Here's my idea. Here's my central idea. God's grace gets God's people. God's grace gets God's people. I want that to stick in our minds and in our hearts and our affections this morning because I believe that is the central truth claim that Paul is making in this text is God's grace gets God's people. 
it's perhaps helpful to contrast this notion of God's grace with the opposite of grace, which is quite ironically the way in which most people understand the core message of the Bible. Consider this contrast. God's people get God by being good. God's people get God by being good. Or God's grace gets God's people. God's people get God by being good. This notion lies at the root of all common explanations of major world religions. And in fact, as much as we not like to believe it, most people's assumptions about what Christianity actually teaches. That God has demonstrated his grace for us in providing for us in the scriptures a roadmap for how to live a good life. And people get God's favor by following the roadmap that he's laid out for us. God's grace is seen in his willingness to provide you with a manual and explain for you how to be a, God, a good person. This is the quickest way to disgrace grace, is to consider Christianity through this lens. This notion would make no sense from the flow of Paul's writing. It does, in fact, disgrace grace. And with a bit of consideration, it's easy to see how, in fact, this is really bad news. Even if God's grace were meant, what was meant by God's grace were his provision of a path for us to follow, what we've seen in Paul's writings up to this point is I couldn't follow the path if he laid it out for me. I couldn't follow the path even if he laid it out for me. I consider this reality every time I go to a car mechanic. I hate it. Uh, you guys know that I've surrendered most of my man cards, and in surrendering my man cards, one of those that I've laid aside is any knowledge of the inner workings of an automobile. I'm clueless. So I dread it. Even the most basic oil change is going to result in some technician coming and saying, we, all, we changed your oil, and we also found 89,000 other things that are going to cost three grand that's broken with your car. Right Now the problem is, I am totally ignorant of the things that he said. He could tell me that my car needed a second transmission, and I would buy it, because I don't know anything about the inner workings of car. I'm totally helpless to follow even the most basic path that he lays out for me. I can't do that work myself, because I don't know what it means. I don't know how to do it. I'm car bankrupt. The scriptures tell us that we, humanity, are all morally bankrupt. This isn't a path that even if God were to spell out the transmission repairs and things that your car needed that you could execute even on your best day. So, we see in the scriptures that people are actually dead in their trespasses and sins. And this establishes for us a critical baseline that's going to push against some of your assumptions and will help us frame the remainder of this passage. The baseline is this. God would have been entirely just to condemn all the human race to hell. This is baseline truth. And this helps us frame and understand God's work of salvation and what grace actually looks like. God would have been entirely just to condemn all of us to eternity in hell. Consider his interaction with Noah in Genesis 9 where we read that God regretted ever making humanity, wiping them out from the face of the earth. But what did God do? He acted in his grace to sustain a people. 
God would have been entirely just to wipe Noah and his family out from the face of the earth. But because of his grace, he acted to get his people, to claim his people. And in fact, he put a mark for us in the sky, this rainbow. Many Old Testament scholars point to the fact that this is an actual arrow, a bow, that is pointed not downward at humanity, but upward at God himself saying ultimately the judgment that he would execute would not come down towards humanity, but the arrow would fire into the heart of God, killing his own son on behalf of human sin, never again wiping out humanity from the face of the earth. This tells us from the very outset of, scriptures, of the scriptures that God is demonstrating his grace in getting his people. Sadly and commonly, the assumption is that the Old Testament God is a God of wrath and the New Testament God is a God of grace. The reality of what we see throughout the scriptures is that the Old Testament is dripping with the grace of God. He is consistently on mission to get his people, often from circumstances that we could not fathom. So God's grace gets God's people. Grace in this text is the means by which God executes his saving work. Grace does the heavy lifting. It does the work. It is the agent that is active in this text, pursuing dead humanity and granting them a status that they could never earn. Three things that grace does for us, if you're taking notes, that will frame our consideration of this text. First, grace gives you, if you are in Christ, grace gives you a status. It gives you a position before God. We see in Paul and the, Paul's writing here that grace is the means by which you are declared alive. This is what Hugh taught us last week, that God is at work regenerating the dead human heart, bringing life where there was once death. Grace is the means by which God regenerates the human heart and changes a person from dead in sins to alive in God. Consider with me Romans chapter 4, a text that you looked at in your small groups this week. If you would turn back in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. We'll see Paul expand on this idea in his letter to the church in Rome. Romans 4, beginning in verse 13. He writes, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. Because the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there's no transgression. This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherence of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, 
who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul holds up, let's press pause there, he holds up for us this tension or this opposite paths. The law, which he writes, simply brings wrath. It demonstrates our moral bankruptcy. It shows that we cannot keep God's law or faith. And faith here specifically points to belief in the promises of God. He says, Abram was counted righteous by virtue of his faith. This faith in the promises of God that God had declared, I will be your God and you will be my people. And it is faith in that promise that unites all subsequent believers to Abram's family tree. By virtue of belief in the promises of God, we are children of the promise. This is then two-pronged good news. On the front end of the equation of salvation, this is really good news because it means you can't be too bad for the good news. But you can be too good for it. This is counterintuitive. You can't be too bad for good news that says, apart from your works, you can be declared right with God by virtue of faith in the promises of God. That means we're all equal. We can all respond in faith and be declared children of God, but the other end of the equation means you can't be too good for it. Your pride and rebellion and idolatry can cause you to fail to bend the knee to the promises of God. Right? And then the back end of this really good news is this. If the gift of salvation doesn't depend on your works then the back-end good news is you can't lose by your works what you did not earn by your works. You can't lose by your works what you did not earn by your works. God's grace gets God's people on the front end and on the back end. He saves you and he keeps you. This is the good news of the gospel. God's grace gives you a status apart from the works of the law. Secondarily, idea number two, is grace gives you faith. Grace gives you a status, and grace gives you faith. Let's continue reading in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. In In hope, he, this is Abram, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew stronger in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him As righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, 
who raised from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, legal rightness before God. Grace, demonstrated in the promise of God, is seen in, is manifest through faith in Abram, who simply believes the promise. And it is this faith that God says counts as righteousness. And we're told as if Paul's wanting to brace this discussion with a number of parenthetical clauses that this is hope against all hope. The odds are stacked against him. In fact, the writer of Genesis recounts that when told these promises by God, what did Abram and Sarah do? They laughed, right? They laughed. I'm convinced that you get grace when you laugh. Right? That you get grace when when you can laugh. This is too good to be true. I'm a hundred and my wife is barren, and yet God promises to establish a great nation through me. These realities did not make him waver concerning the promises of God. Rather, he did the unthinkable. He believed God. He believed God. And the means by which he was able to believe God is God's grace. God's grace empowers our faith to believe God's promises. And this is something we would never be able to do were it not for God's grace. Dead hearts can't produce faith apart from God's grace. You can't muster it up of your own power. God's grace empowers it, as we'll see subsequently in verse 8. Now let's talk for a second about the elephant in the room for some of you. If you have some type of church background, depending on where you come from, you may have just elbowed your wife and said, Hun, that, that boy sounds like one of them there Calvinists. Right? I've heard these things before, and that reminds me of something. I get that question all the time. Are you one of them there Calvinists? If you're new to the church and new to discussions of Christianity, just press pause for about five minutes and I'll come back to you. <laughs> but I want to address this for, for the edification of the church and the hopes that we'll be careful as we speak about these realities. Are you a Calvinist? My immediate answer is, well, it depends on what you mean. And depending on the nature of the person in the room, one of two things. They either really want me to be, so they can high-five me and say, I'll go to your church. Or they've come to associate Calvinism with four massive enemies. Anti-evangelism, anti-prayer, anti-obedience, and often pridefully aggressive foolishness. Anti-evangelism, anti-prayer, anti-obedience, and pridefully aggressive foolishness. Sadly, a high view of God's grace and salvation 
often falls on us as rendering humanity totally robotic in our understanding before God, and therefore these things that the scriptures have clearly commanded us to speak of the gospel, to pray, to obey, fall on deaf ears. The logic goes like this. Well, if God has already determined the ends, then why does any of the rest of this matter? If God's going to save whom he will, then why do I do these things? The answer, for me at least, is that a God who has determined the ends is also a God who has determined the means. And I do not, with my mind, understand how all of these things square in cosmic reality. I don't get my mind around all of these truths and the inner workings of God's salvation act, but I know that in God's economy, two ideas that are seemingly mutually exclusive to humanity are both intimately critical in God's saving act. Consider the way I, I think about this is consider this. I mean, you've already seen it a bit, but if I hold this up to you this way, looking at this object with your 2D eyes at this moment, considering this object with your 2D eyes, if you didn't know what was behind it, this looks like a circle, right? To a 2D mind, or you might draw it on your page, this is a circle. But turn it upright, and the circle quickly becomes a stack of concentric circles, making the shape of a cone or even a triangle at times. To a 2D mind, this circle is, this shape is only a circle. But to a 3D mind, circles can become triangles, and circles and triangles can quickly become cones. There is a great danger for us in explaining God's work of salvation to attempt to rigidly square everything with our 2D minds that are essential in God's 3D universe. And somehow in the 3D world that God has designed, things like human responsibility and divine sovereignty actually work together to perfectly execute God's redemptive mission. And for some of you that don't like some degree of tension in your understanding of God's work in the world, I would ask you how foolish it is to think that we as frail humans would be able to plumb the depths of God's inner working of salvation. Making rigid things that God has not made rigid in the scriptures does a disservice to the cosmic scope of how God is executing his plan. And somehow, in ways that I won't be able to plumb the depths of until the other side of humanity, human responsibility and divine sovereignty perfectly execute God's redemptive plan. God is executing the ends. He's executing the means. He is moving on my heart. He is producing what he ultimately desires. And therefore, it's my responsibility to be faithful, to obey to share the gospel, to pray, to not be an overly aggressive jerk, to allow people the faith to think and explore and ask questions, recognizing that some of these things are bigger than we can get our minds around. But, but, here's my caveat, let me say, if I am going to be biblically faithful we are going to consistently 
err on the side of, having a high view of God's sovereignty and his work in the world, recognizing that salvation is not a 50-50 arrangement. God is executing, God is perfectly accomplishing his means, and the tension of that is I still have responsibility. This is what we see in the scriptures. By grace you're saved through faith. And we'll attempt to plumb the depths of that in the weeks to come. In ways that my human mind is not equipped to fully understand, God's grace will get God's people. God's grace will get God's people. Thirdly and lastly, grace gives me, gives you a desire. Grace gives you a status, grace gives you faith, and grace gives you desire. We typically think of the categories this way. It's risky to talk about grace, because if we talk about grace, people are going to take it and run with it. This means I can do whatever I want to, right? I can live however I want to. Paul anticipates that question in Romans chapter 6, and in fact, I would say that question is a really good reflection of whether or not you get grace, right? This is a really good question. The laugh factor and this question are two for me, right? Well, that means I can do whatever I want to, Paul says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may, be, may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in Counterintuitively, the biblical equation is not more law equals less sin, but more grace equals less sin. The answer to the sin problem is not piling on more law, but it is heaping, lavishing, displaying God's grace. It is putting that grace on display that in spite of who you are, God acts on your heart to grant you a status, to declare you alive, to compel your heart to place your faith in him and worship him forever. And this reality that apart from who I am, in my deadness and sins, God acted upon me, causes us to fight sin with a carrot and not with a stick. We fight sin with the carrot of worship and not with the stick of the law. We're told in Hebrews 6, frighteningly, this reality. For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers in the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those sake it is cultivated and it receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned." The biblical equation for us, for how we know if God has acted on our hearts, how we know if he's granted faith, is that we would then produce fruit in keeping with repentance. 
that worship is the natural outworking, the outflow of God's redemptive work on our hearts. And the Hebrews author holds up this great danger. He says there are people who are close but unwilling to surrender in faith. This, then, according to Hebrews 6, is a terrifying concept for those of us in the church. Because notice the language that the Hebrew author records. In all outward manifestations, these people look just like you and I. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the benefits of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Why would somebody do this? Perhaps out of proximity. This is particularly true in the Southeast, right? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're just here as a result of a friend that brought you because this is the good religious thing that you're supposed to do in the Southeast is go to church. You have been the immense recipient over the course of your life of the abundant grace of God through the teaching of his word, the fellowship of the church. But in your life, you prove unfruitful. Perhaps out of proximity. Perhaps some people taste of these things out of a desire for their circumstances to change. They don't want God. What they want is out of their circumstances. And for those people, the author says it's impossible to restore them to repentance because they will not repent. They are, in fact, holding him, Christ, up to contempt, saying that he died in vain. And so there are outward manifestations for us to know whether this has happened in our lives whether God has given us a status, whether he has given us faith, and whether he's given us a desire to produce fruit in keeping with his work in our lives. And for an audience like this or group like this, the reality is that this truth is going to fall on you differently. If you are here and you are apart from God, my guess is this morning's sermon is incredibly offensive to you. Because why we, while we may like the thought of grace, the reality is our lives are predicated on our works. Imagine for me in this upcoming football season, Hugh and I were researching this morning, uh, Prairie View A&M is the losingest college football team in the history of college sports. In the years spanning 1989 to 1998, they lost 80 straight football games. How would you like to be on the recruiting trail for Prairie View A&M, right? How do you recruit somebody to come to a decade-long losing school? Now imagine for me this morning that at the beginning of this season, a group of uh, the guys that get together and talk about the BCS get in a room and they say this, Prairie View A&M, you boys are terrible. And we feel so bad for you that this year before the games are even played, we're going to put you in the BCS championship. And not only are we going to put you in the BCS championship, but we're going to already declare you the winner of the BCS championship before the seasons even played. I guarantee you, if the Prairie View football team were sitting before me, 
There's not a man worth a grain of salt that's going to take that arrangement. Why? Because we would rather win one game based on our works than be given something apart from anything that we do. We would rather win one game on the basis of our works. And friends, that is going to condemn many people to eternal hell. Because they are unwilling to receive the grace of God. And they would rather be a pretty decent religious person than bend their knee to the king of the universe. If that is you today, I hold out the offer of the free gift of righteousness that you did not earn and a payment for sin that you should have paid. That is for you. And the biblical authors tell us that the way you claim that is you repent and believe. You repent and believe. And so this day, God has been kind to you to put you within hearing of the word, to hold up the grace of Christ as best I know how, to display that for you and beg of you, repent and trust in Christ. Don't leave this room playing the game on your own. Trust in work that has been done for you. Let's take some space in this moment to close your eyes. Pray for many of you in this room, you can think back to a moment or a series of events where God saved you, where you placed your faith in Christ's good work. Would you use this space right now to pray? And I don't mean like trite prayer. I mean pray, pray, like pray that God would bring dead hearts to life here. That he would save coworkers and friends and people that you're sitting around. That he would give them the gift of faith to believe. If right now you know that people in this room are praying for you because that's, that's you. Would you, where you're seated, simply admit your faith before God? If he has been at work in your heart and you're not exactly sure how to process with all that, but today it's become increasingly clear for you that you are dead in your sin. You believe that Jesus is God's son who paid the price that your sin deserved and gave you the perfect life that his righteousness earned. Thank him for that in prayer. Admit your trust in his promises that you can be a child of God.
And if that, that's you, we're told in the scriptures that if we believe, if we confess before the Lord, we will be saved. The promises of God become promises to you today. then, as an extension of this glorious grace, we get this reminder that's spread out on the table before us of the body and blood of Christ that was his act of grace, the embodiment of grace, Jesus himself, that accomplished this for us. Paul recounts Jesus' words that he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after the supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you, drink, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. for those around the room that have placed their faith, have repented and believed, have trusted in Christ, we come to the table not by virtue of our works this morning, but by virtue of the grace of God. We remember the body that was broken, the blood that was poured out for us. And a minute after I pray, uh, the table is available for you. You can come pray with those that are in your family, your friends, your small group members, thanking God for doing something that your works could never do through the person of Christ. That the cosmic reality of the mission of God would be a name, your name, that he saved you. If you're here and you just prayed to trust in Christ or you're still wavering, with questions or doubt, I ask that you would pass on the table this morning. Come and talk to one of the pastors. There'll be two down front and two in the back. Come and kneel at the front in prayer with a friend or coworker. We would love to talk with you more about the person of Christ. God, the only response to grace is worship. It's the only right response. So would you help us to do that now? Produce in us what our deadness and trespasses and sins could never do. Cause us to worship you. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.